chapter of Little Women, Harvest Time, picks up five years after we last left the March girls and their supporting characters, or husbands. We get only a brief impressionistic glimpse of one day in their lives, but it's enough to show us that even though there are some shadows in the sunshine, all will be well for Meg, Joe, and Amy. Sorry, Beth. Whoops. In that spirit, we are leaving off Joe March Madness and the first season of Costume Drama Rewind with our own Harvest Time. We'll announce our winners, talk about the long-term cultural impact of Little Women, and leave you with a few final burning thoughts. But first, our results. We've been on quite a journey together, friends. When we set out, I was sure I knew how my final bracket would go. Hepburn would beat Allison, Ryder would beat Hawk, anyone would beat Ronan, and we'd end where I'd started, with the 1994 Little Women coming out on top as the ultimate, the definitive, the perfect version. I mean, I walked down the aisle at my wedding to For the Beauty of the Earth 100% because of that movie. But the purity of the bracket system cannot be denied, or so the sports people tell me, and what I ended up with was something very different, so that, as you'll recall, the 1949 version scored higher than Catherine Hepburn's somewhat catatonic 1933 performance. Then the 2017 shocked us all by edging out the 1994. And then even a wet sack of bedbugs would have defeated the 2018 version. <laughs> That's so random and gross. And that means that here at the end of all things Samwise Gamgee... I'm awarding my big prize to the 2017 BBC miniseries of Little Women featuring Maya Hawke's spirited yet sensitive performances, Joe. Over to you, Laura. I, unlike you, didn't have any real favorites going into this. This movie watching marathon in which I decided Catherine Hepburn's legacy as Joe beat out June Ellison, that Maya Hawke's bad temper beat out her Stranger Things co-star Winona Ryder, and that the 2019 Gerwig was obviously better than the 2018. And based on the numbers, 2017 getting 25 and 2019, 22.5, the 2017 miniseries can now claim authoritatively that it has won the Joe March Madness Tournament of 2021. Wow, what an upset, Bob. I feel like (laughs) that's something a sports person would say. person probably would not now take you on a journey through how Little Women continues to make its impact felt down the decades. Well, we had talked about doing something that might seem a little bit silly and irreverent, but Amy Boyd Ruse straight up says in her book, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, that there's no denying that Little Women originated the four sister theme and paved the way for many followers. So I couldn't help but wonder... Would you say that Beth is a Charlotte, a Carrie, a Miranda, or a Samantha? So there's actually a name for this. The excellent website TV Tropes refers to it officially as the four-girl ensemble. And the pattern always goes like this. You have the sweet, naive girl, the rebel, who is often also a tomboy, the sexy and or glamorous and or stylish one, and the wise leader type, who is sometimes the mom of the group, and often the narrator. Little Women is, of course, the er version of this, also known as the trope codifier. We accept this framing, then Beth is the Charlotte, Meg is the Carrie, Joe is a Miranda, and Amy's a Samantha. If we go back a generation to the Golden Girls, Beth is a Rose, Meg is a Dorothy, Joe is a Sophia, and Amy is a Blanche. I can keep going all day. Babysitter's Club? Beth is obviously a Marianne, and Amy is obviously a Stacy. 
Joe and Meg are harder to figure out here, but Claudia is the rebel, which makes her Joe, and Christy is the initial narrator and leader, which makes her Meg. Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, Beth is Lena, Meg is Carmen, Joe is Tibby, and Amy is Bridget. Have you had enough? Are you thirsty for more? (laughs) There's also not just the four-girl ensemble, but the broader four-temperament ensemble, in which, obviously, Beth is a Hufflepuff, Meg is a Ravenclaw, Joe is a Gryffindor, and Amy is a Slytherin. Obviously. And so am I. Let's talk about the impact that Little Women had on the Alcott family. After Little Women got published, it's interesting how the family reacted. May had done the illustrations for the first edition. The drawings aren't that great as the proportions were off and the girls have like no facial expressions whatsoever. Which is really funny because Joe actually refers to this a couple of times in Little Women. Yep, with the horse with no neck. (laughs) What does that even look like? I have questions. Anyway. (laughs) May, however, did not like how she was represented as Amy. In particular, that clothespin on the nose thing. Even if, as Anne Boyd Rue points out, she later admitted to being extremely materialistic in her earlier years. And as a concession to you, Megan, apparently Louisa felt May was just as spoiled as Joe saw Amy, knowing that she always had the cream of things. Bronson, like the tool he was, cashed in on the popularity of the books, went on a speaking tour, and referred to himself as father of the little women. Still better than the marmy of the bride. Oh! But what about what about Louisa? She shared a lot of character traits with Joe, and things that she said about herself show up in Little Women, but apply to Joe. For example, when her hair got cut after getting sick in DC, she lamented the loss of her one beauty. Even though she'd resisted her editor's ideas to write for young girls, she seemed pretty happy to tie herself into the story. She often called herself Joe and would refer to everyone else in the family as the names from the little women that applied. Which I'm However, sure they loved. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> However, she was majorly overwhelmed with just how popular the book was and how she and the family became celebrities. So many visitors began dropping in on them at their house that she tried to pass herself off as a maid. I'm going to start doing that the next time the census taker comes around. <laughs> As time went on, her remaining family also viewed the story of Little Women as their family's story, and they were fierce about protecting it. In particular, for the 1912 Broadway version, which was a major hit, Louise's adopted son, her nephew, John Sewell Pratt Alcott, was involved in editing the script for it. When they first got approached about turning it into a play, basically what he said was that he and the family thought it would make a sacrilege of her home and that the story was too intimate for the publicity of the stage. The Met Joe, Beth, and Amy book says that Little Women is arguably the most influential book ever written by an American woman. Its nearest contenders, Uncle Tom's Cabin and Gone with the Wind, cannot match its persistent impact. It has never gone out of print or fallen out of favor. Selznick didn't get credited as his work as a producer for the 1933 movie version, but his success with Little Women proved that there was an audience for period films, which allowed him to make Gone with the Wind a few years later. Which is really entertaining to me because literally my first note for the 1933 version was Marmy has a major Melanie Wilkes vibe here. When they were making the movie, some of the makers wanted to update the movie to the 1930s because it would save the money on costumes and all the other historical trappings. But Kukor and Selznick were super dead set on being faithful to the 1860s setting and they finally got their way. 
and audiences loved it. Little Women was the fourth highest grossing movie that year. It won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay and sold out in other countries too. And even though she won an Oscar for a different movie that year, Little Women really helped make Katherine Hepburn a star. Also, merchandise. The movie meant Little Women's swag, both in the 1933 and the 1949. There were new editions of Louisa May Alcott's books published with images of Orchard House. You mean that didn't just start with Nicholas Sparks books? (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Uh, They also had pictures from the movies included in these publications. There are also clothing, playing cards, embroidery samplers, Hallmark cards, jewelry boxes, scarves, and even milk and soap with pictures from the movie. And of course, the ultimate piece of material culture, Orchard House itself was almost 200 years old by the time the Alcotts moved in, but they're the ones that put it on the map. This was where Little Women was written. And it doesn't hurt that the 1880 edition has pictures of the house with the caption, Home of the Little Women. The 1912 Broadway play used Orchard House as a model, and the 1918 movie used it for exterior shots and modeled the interior set on the inside of the house. But the 1933 version went over the top. Every single picture on the wall, every piece of furniture got reproductions made for the movie. And it's also shown in the opening and the ending title cards. It wasn't too long after the Alcott stopped owning the house that people began looking to save it, led by the Concord Women's Club, who began fundraising campaigns to buy it and turn it into a museum. The house opened to the public in 1912 and remains one of the nation's best-known historic house museums. Today, about three-quarters of the interior furnishings belonged to members of the Alcott family, including their china, portraits and other artwork by May Alcott, some of Abigail's kitchen implements and handmade quilts, and Bronson Alcott's desk, from which he planned his many failures. (coughs) The museum offers an impressive range of public programming, from living history to regular discussion series about issues related to the Alcott's lives and work, creative writing workshops for young people, and a summer teacher institute. While they've been closed to the public over the last year, they've kept the grounds and gardens open, and they offer an outstanding virtual tour over Vimeo that's well worth the $10 to access it. The staff of Orchard House have certainly worked hard not just to preserve the Alcott's home, but to reflect how their story is relevant to the present day, and we really look forward to visiting later this year, as they've announced a tentative reopening date of August 1st. I do think it's a bit interesting that Orchard House is the property that's the most closely tied to Little Women, like they have a monopoly on it. I mean, I get that that's where she wrote it, and Anna, aka Meg, did marry her husband there in the living room, but the Alcotts didn't even live there until the girls were all grown up and Lizzie had died, and then the family later moved to the Thoreau Alcott House. During her childhood, Louisa May Alcott and her family moved all over the place. They weren't just you know, staying at one place for a long time. But moreover, she didn't even like Orchard House because being there with her family made it hard for her to get any real writing work done because she was doing pretty much all the housework. And she saw it as like her parents' place, not her own. The millennials dilemma to this day. So as we wrap up this episode, we wanted to share a few final thoughts that did not make it into the previous three or four episodes. First, the role the opera had in the movies, which doesn't really happen in the books. I think it's a less sexy lecture they go to. 
And we're mostly talking about the opera because Laura is a real big opera nerd and I had to keep shushing her through all six movies. So thank you for indulging me here. So the 1933 version, I have notes because Joe rolls into the opera in a really nice dress and they have regular orchestra seats. In the 1949, they have a whole box from which to watch. What's going to happen in the next version? Are they going to roll in on an elephant and watch a private performance? Is the professor a drug kingpin? This is the only fan fiction I will ever accept. How do they afford any of this? In the 1994, the opera they get to is The Pearl Fishers by Bizet, which did not come to the U.S. until the 1890s. And I want to point out the irony of Professor Bear having a hissy fit over Joe's lurid crime stories, having immoral plots with, oh my gosh, vampires. And then he takes her to the opera, which is almost entirely about scandalous love affairs and murder. I am happy to report that in the, that in the 1994, they are back to being scrolled away in the rafters for maximum romantical impact. When I was eight, I thought it was the most romantic thing that had ever happened, that entire scene at the opera. 35, I still might. In the 2017, Laurie mentions when he's talking about his attempts to write an opera, I like Mozart, I like Beethoven. Beethoven only wrote one opera, you poser. Also, nobody knows how to waltz in this production, and that really annoyed me. We also have some thoughts about some of the medical issues that turn up. Yeah, in the 2017, Meg says, can I take some Belladonna? Like she's popping a Tylenol. The fact that the marches don't manage to poison themselves to death in this production is amazing. Belladonna, for those not into weird plants, is also known as deadly nightshade. There was some anecdotal success in using it as a prophylactic against scarlet fever in the 1800s, but things did not really get better for New England's scarlet fever epidemics, which reliably killed about 25% of those infected, until the development of antibiotics. Source, my grandma had scarlet fever. Ended up with a weak heart, just like Beth. I know everything about it. It's also a little odd in the 1994 version when Beth comes home from the Hummels and Meg and Joe are frantically flipping through essentially a printed out version of WebMD trying to diagnose whatever it is. It look, The symptoms look like this, but it could be that. Guys, you live in a time and a place where scarlet fever epidemics happen all the time. There are not that many things it could be. This is not a complex problem. And they had already had it. They should know what it's like. Well, short memories. Well, finally, just a few character notes, which is mostly an excuse for a rant that Laura has been brewing for several months now. But my big takeaway from all of these movies is that while I've spent all my life trying to be a Joe, I think the character that I actually identify with most might be Aunt March. And I need to spend our season break dealing with that. I don't know. I think it's perfectly valid. In the 1949, I hated how they showed Amy Liz Taylor literally dropping crumbs in the Hummel children's mouths for laughs. Like it's a cute thing. These kids are literally starving to death. I have told you all along that Amy is the verifiable worst. Have we at least reached some consensus on that? I will acknowledge that in some productions, she is the worst, primarily the 2017. Moving on to Bear. I oh, know God. that- Here it comes. <laughs> I- I know. <laughs> I know that the official media take on the Greta Gerwig version is that anything and everything she does is this revolutionary and modern take on the book. But making Bear a hot French dude isn't without some precedent. 
one of the early London stage adaptations made him a French guy named Barr, and the 2018 modern version makes him a hot American English prophet, Columbia. Hot? He was much hotter than some productions we've seen. Anyway. My biggest issue with him isn't the fault of any of the directors. It's actually with Louisa May Alcott herself. Despite her weird fetish with all things German and assigning specific personalities like phlegmatic to German people, I'm not quite sure that she got the spelling of Bear right. I'm not a fluent German speaker, but I don't think that there are any native German words that start off with B-H. It could be a regional thing or just some antiquated spelling that's been removed from the language since the 1860s. But at any rate, if anyone has intel on this, let me know, because otherwise I'm just going to be annoyed with Louisa. Please, because this is like the 14th time I've heard this rant. Save me. (laughs) And finally, can we talk about just how bad some of the movie posters are? The 1933 poster looks more like a film noir than anything else, with all the girls lined up in a row looking super sullen. The 1949 doesn't even bother trying to pass off Liz Taylor as a blonde. She's pictured as a brunette. And the 2018 looks just like the intern tilted some of the photos of the girls at odd angles using Photoshop between geometry and world lit. And with that, friends, I know that over the past year, many of us have reached the bottom of the internet. Laura and I have reached the bottom of Little Women. This is it. We're done. We have no more thoughts about Little Women. You have heard them all. (laughs) And with that, we have loved sharing our first season of Costume Drama Rewind with you, including but not limited to every thought that we have ever had or will ever have about Little Women. We're going to take a short season break and come back to you in late June with a seasonally appropriate fan favorite. Gettysburg, starring some of pre-hipster Hollywood's greatest beards, plus President Josiah Bartlett. In the meantime, please drop us a line with questions, thoughts, suggestions, or anything else that you want to get off your chest. You can reach us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or at CostumeDramaRewind at gmail.com. I'm Megan Jutt. And I'm Laura Skog. Thanks for listening.